Goddard Space Flight Center, one of NASA's original sites, is about to get a major nip and tuck. This after NASA's Office of Strategic Infrastructure said yes to a new master plan for Goddard. For one thing, Goddard plans to cut its building square footage by 25 percent. Here with details, Goddard's Associate Center Director, Ray Rubalata. Mr. Rubalata, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Nice to talk to you. And just give us a sense of the scope of Goddard. It's a big facility and it has a lot of satellite facilities, no pun intended. So it's kind of all over the place. Yes, that's correct. Uh, the Goddard Space Flight Center is comprised of uh, six major campuses, um, and they are in the states of uh, Texas, New Mexico, West Virginia, New York City, uh, Maryland, and of course, Virginia. Those again are our primary campuses, and then we are a worldwide uh, kind of a, of a setup for NASA in that we have launch sites all over the world. Uh, where we conduct our science and our different activities. All right. And what does go on there in terms of launches? Because it's called a space flight center. Uh, correct. So, so uh, quite frankly, Goddard actually starts out with science. Everything we do, we are a science center for NASA. And so what happens is it starts with our science. Um, and we have different operations from cutting technology to launch support activities. Um, you know, we were integral. The James Webb Space Telescope, which a lot of news media uh, talked about just uh, just last yesterday, uh, actually was was integrated and many components built here at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Our primary campus is here at the Greenbelt, Maryland facility, uh, where you're talking about with the launching. Um, that actually is out at our Wallops Flight Facility, located in Accomack County in Virginia. And so what we have from there is we have the capability. We actually launched the uh, International Space Station cargo resupplies with our partnership with Northrop Grumman. But we also do a lot of just science work out there. We launch sounding rockets. Uh, we have the capability, we manage a balloon program. So the initial technology and science areas of discovery are actually launched from there as well as other sites around the world that Goddard maintains. And then that grows into the larger missions like a James Webb Space Telescope as scientists and engineers are able to test those technologies in a safe test range area that we have at Wallops. When you look at our West Virginia, our Katherine Johnson, uh, what we call uh, IV&V or Independent Verification and Validation Facility, that's where we actually go ahead and we provide an independent look for NASA at all of the software that actually operates on uh, either like say uh, science missions or the Artemis satellite. Uh, so we have a select number of missions where we go ahead and do that verification and validation of that code that will be used to make sure that everything operates well. Give us a sense of the acreage and the number of people involved here and then we'll get into the master plan. Sure, so each site has a different footprint. Again, as I mentioned before, our Greenbelt site is the the largest facility we have and so i would say that we have close to multiple hundreds of thousands of square footage at the greenbelt campus we view our footprint not so much in the way of acreage but is in assets and dollars so we have over a billion dollars of assets for example at our wallops facility in virginia we have 36 major buildings that would cost over two billion dollars 
to replace many of them here at the Greenbelt campus, some of our science and engineering and technical facilities. So we have multiple billions of dollars. And so when we look at it, we look at it as a combination of both acreage and square footage and cost of building those facilities. And the population? We have about a 3,300 civil servant workforce strewn over the six campuses of the Goddard Space Flight Center. And then in totality, we have about a 10,000 person workforce. It's about 6,700 of our contractor partners that help us support the mission of the center. We're speaking with Ray Rubalata. He's the associate director of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Let's get into the master plan, the newly approved master plan. It looks like you're going to reduce the building square footage. But first of all, tell us what is the goal of the master plan in the large sense? Sure. So not only for Goddard, but also for all NASA facilities, uh, we've embarked on making sure that for the NASA of the future, that we have the right facilities that will go ahead and be able to efficiently and effectively make sure that we can meet those commitments that the agency has before us. And so the the purpose of the master plan is to look at what facilities we have now, see if they have a usefulness into the future, and if not, what new facilities do we need to build? What facilities do we have that with a slight renovation or modification can meet the needs of the future? And then which ones do we just actually need to go ahead and divest ourselves of? And so there is a, a vision and a plan that the agency has laid forth. And so we've worked over the last five years from a concept plan up to the full approval of our master plan uh, to go ahead and meet those mission commitments and agency directions uh, to make sure that we have the facilities and the capabilities to go ahead and meet all of those. And what will you be doing then? You know, it's a master plan that actually goes out to about 2037. And so, uh, again, this is an agency-wide initiative. So we have broken ours out into what I would call five-year phases. What we do is we look at is what we would like to, as we know today, go ahead and demolish what we would like to renovate, what we would like to divest, where we would like to develop potential partnering or outreach zones at our center to go ahead and position ourselves so that by the completion uh, of the master plan phase, which is 2037, we have positioned ourselves to be ready to meet the challenges and the, the needs of the agency. And why do you plan to reduce square footage by 25%? That sounds like a lot of buildings to tear down. Most of our facilities were built in the uh, 60s and 70s, where the layout, the construction, uh, the, the design of what I would say current architecture uh, isn't as readily uh, uh, set up in these some of these buildings. They are old in their age. Much of NASA's infrastructure uh, falls into that area. And so because of that, as we build new buildings and as we do renovations, we will able be able to leverage the technologies of both architecture as well as needs, as well as what we call within the agency our future of work. If there is a silver lining to the last two years of the pandemic, we have been able to prove as an agency and as a center that working in a hybrid mode, finding the positions not so much of necessarily having people on site, but how they can best meet the mission of the agency, whether it be on site or in some other location, 
has afforded us the ability to find buildings that we no longer will need or that we would have to spend a significant amount of our operations and maintenance budget to maintain, uh, given not only their age, but also the antiquated infrastructure that goes ahead and makes up those facilities. And so we've been able to identify buildings that we can go ahead and reduce and take off of our footprint. It sounds like you're expecting a hybrid workforce with respect to on-campus and remote or telework pretty much for the foreseeable future? Yes, we clearly want to be and continue to be. As, as you know, our employee viewpoint survey scores, NASA, 10 years running, has been proven to, you know, has come out to be the best place to work in the federal government. And we want to continue to be that employer of choice for, you know, the best and brightest that there are in our nation to help support our advancement in space and in technology and science. And so therefore, yes, uh, we, we look at how industry is moving and we have seen that this is something that is um, not only commonplace in private industry, but starting to make inroads in the federal government. And that's something that we are looking to embrace and move forward to in the coming years of this hybrid workforce. And earlier you mentioned some of the missions, of course, the space launches to resupply the space station, scientific research. You mentioned software review, which sounds like a small mission, but anyone that's ever touched software knows how much work that takes. Is there any fundamental change in the mission set for Goddard, or you're just realigning to the way they have to be carried out in the future? Absolutely, Tom. You've got it. It's it's the latter. Um, every We have verified through this master plan process that there are nuanced changes to our lines of business as a center that will be changed going into the future, but the fundamental basis of our lines of business will remain in that of science, balloons, technology, verification of our software, climate change, the environment, all of those areas that we are actively leading today, we will continue to do so into the future. And just a detailed question in the science and research area, and this is prompted by something I saw, which is the emptying of a garage full of oscilloscopes and other kinds of instruments like that, older computers. And at one time, oscilloscope was a floor-standing big instrument with a big tube on it. And I asked a friend of mine in electronics, he said, yeah, nobody uses them anymore. It's an app on your phone now, everything that an oscilloscope could do. So I imagine an average laboratory doesn't need the footage and electrical power and all of these things that it did decades ago when people had tube-powered testing gear and that kind of thing. You're absolutely correct. Uh, We have just finished uh, building here, for example, at the Greenbelt site. Uh, Recently, uh, you know, within the last 10 years, two new facilities that house our science and our engineering communities. And that's exactly it. Flexibility is now the key. In previous construction, you built it for a specific purpose. That is no longer the case. All of our technical space is now built with that flexibility and the ability to adjust to new emerging technologies, um, new requirements. And so that's where there is a huge partnership with our science and engineering community, as well as our facilities engineers to make sure that we are building that capacity into all of our new construction. And by the way, getting to a more topical issue, what is the status of Goddard with respect to those that want to come back into the buildings to work? Where do you stand at this point? Sure. So, you know, we have a a saying in NASA, it's people first, mission always. And that's really the fundamental, you know, guidelines that we're having these conversations right now. So we are having not only our supervisors talk with our missions and our customers 
as to what their requirements are, but then we're also doing the conversation uh, with their staffs to see how we can best then meet those needs. There's no cookie cutter approach. There's no one size fits all. It's gonna be based on the mission, but also taking into account the great benefits that we've been able to realize uh, from this hybrid workforce and experience, and then just bringing that on into our future uh, way of, of working going forward. And finally, you said the plan goes to 2037. You won't be around probably that is to say, working at NASA. We hope you're still around, but you won't be at NASA by then, will you? Uh, no, I, I, you've hit the nail on the head, Tom. I hope I'm not a part of the environment by 2037. But yes, so many master plans, that's what it, what it does. You know, this is not the first time for Goddard that we've had a master plan. In fact, I in, inherited a master plan from my predecessors that was done actually in the 90s. And so what it does is it lays a, a, a blueprint of leadership and agency priorities at that time of how the center was going. And then it allows you the ability to modify or adjust that. So even though I personally uh, won't be here in 2037 working for NASA, whoever replaces me, it will provide that blueprint. So they're not starting from scratch as to what the philosophy, the thoughts were behind how the center needs to position itself to be viable going in for future decades. Ray Rubalata is Associate Director of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure talking to you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that, I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger but really using data and so i would say i've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities but has evolved from being very reactive and saying well don't do this and don't do that to saying let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. As an Alliant Energy representative, I really enjoy helping businesses save. Today, I visited a business that asked for a free energy audit. After walking through their facility, I let the customers know how much money and energy they could be saving. Plus, I gave them an action plan detailing how to improve their energy efficiency. I showed them how they could save even more with rebates from Alliant Energy on equipment upgrades. If you are interested in saving energy and money, schedule a free energy audit at AlliantEnergy.com energyaudit energy audit.